You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. James is referring to its sinful expression when bitterness comes and anger comes and you're jealous that someone else is getting something that God hasn't given to you and you're angry with God and you're angry with men and you curse them. And this is not referring just to don't curse the brethren. This is broader. Don't curse unbelievers either. Notice it says next, who have been made in the likeness of God. That covers everybody. Everyone that's created is created in the likeness of God, right? Jealousy. It's a word you know, but not one you'd want to label yourself with. But think about it. When you see someone else with blessings you want, it rears its ugly head. It's likely even more true when you don't think that the other person deserves the favor. Today, Pastor Tom will remind you that God doesn't pick favorites. He has a plan for you, too. While you're waiting to find out what that is, don't let jealousy overtake your thoughts and interactions. Be thankful for what the Lord has given you and pray for others. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he continues his message, Duplicitous Praise. Here, God the Father is stressed as Lord for what? What does Lord mean? It means he is Lord above. It means he has authority. He is a noble one with mastery. And so when we think of God, we should think of him with the highest honor and the highest reverence. We should honor him and, and his absolute authority. He's king over the universe. He's, he's in control of every little detail that happens. There's nothing that happens in the universe that's apart from his control. He's sovereign over all. So we bless him as Lord, as king, as master. He's high. He's exalted. He's in control. Our lives are controlled by him, and so we should bless him and honor him. He's also called Father. What does Father bring up? That he's the originator of our lives. Indeed, we were created from him. He's also our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ for our second creation, our recreation, our redemption, and our regeneration in Christ, right? We were made by the Creator. We were remade in Christ Jesus for a new life in Christ. He's our Father both ways. And as a Father, he's tender, he's caring, he's generous. Father means that he's a God who gives and he's generous. He loves his children. We read earlier in chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He's generous. He was generous. He remains generous. He gives. He loves to give. That's who he was. That's who he is. That's who he will always be. He never changes, not even a flicker of change in God's character. I hope your view of God when you pray to God and bow your head and you're alone and you praise him and call him Father, that you understand how much he tenderly cares for you. This God who sent his son, his only begotten son, so that we might live through him, so that we might have everlasting life and not be judged. This father who cared for you individually, who had you in his mind when he elected you before the worlds began, this Father who cared for you there cares for you now. I know as a father, I want my children to believe that I'm a generous father, that they can come and ask for something, and I'll do whatever I can to be able to provide that. And how disappointed I would be if they didn't believe in my generosity. Do you believe in the generosity, kindness, goodness of gifts from the Heavenly Father toward you? Do you believe that? And do you bless the Father because you believe that? I hope you do. 
Our Heavenly Father wants His children crying to Him night and day. He's pleased by that. Our Heavenly Father also tests our resolve about the things that we cry to Him for before He grants it because He wants our faith to grow and our character to grow. He wants our appreciation for when it comes to understand we don't deserve what we got, but He graciously gave it. Our Heavenly Father first has to purge all of our pride and our stubbornness and our self-sufficiency, which we don't want to admit is even inside of us, before He grants the request. So He may minister to us even more because He cares about us for eternity. He purifies our motives and then He grants what we request. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you, right? God gives. He doesn't give stingily. He gives pressed down, shaken together. You can't outgive God. God is good. God never changes. God is not just good towards Abraham. He's good towards you. You are his child. And that is why we bless him as Lord and Father. And that's good. It's good we do that. But notice the discordant note in this symphony of praise next. And with it, the it still being the tongue, with it, we wah, 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 curse Men, we curse men. Yikes. There are human beings and we curse them. Now, cursing is probably not exactly what you think. It doesn't simply mean cussing at them. I know we call those curse words in English, but James with a Hebrew background means something broader, something deeper, worse than just filthy words that come out of our mouth. Which, by the way, you hear a lot of filthy words out there. You should not repeat those words. Your mouth should not be a channel for the filth of the world. The world is going to speak filthy. They're going to speak from what is in their heart. Their heart is unclean. Yours is not. And so you shouldn't be passing on any of these things. They shouldn't be part of your vocabulary. They shouldn't be part of your social vocabulary, social media. Don't abbreviate them and and say, that's okay to do. No, that's not okay to do. That's you becoming like them. Filth is unbecoming of saints. The Word of God is so clear and specific about that. None of the filth of the culture is to be part of our expressions. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouths, right? Ephesians 4.29. Those are bad, but cursing is bad and broader. Cursing is the word kataraomai. It means to call down doom upon somebody. To bring a curse from above, a real powerful curse on them, to doom them, to speak with an imprecatory wish, like we would say, may God destroy you or may God the other D word, which actually when used properly, the wish to damn someone literally is put them in the eternal lake of fire and be done with them forever. Let them be led to utter ruin in hell. Someone might say, I hope you die. Go to you know where. That's cursing. uh, Douglas Moo writes, the ancient curse was far more than abusive language. It called on God, in effect, to cut a person off from any possible blessing and to consign that person to hell, end quote. So you can avoid cuss words your whole life and still curse people. Because you wish their doom, you pray their destruction, you utter angry words of vitriol upon them, you spew out invective damnation. Listen, cursing was very much a part of the ancient world as it is today. 
1 Samuel 17, 43, this is uh, Goliath, the Philistine, it says. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And it says the Philistine cursed David by his gods. In other words, he was praying to his gods and said, by the power of my, my gods, like Dagon, one of the gods, bring down destruction on this boy in front of me. Of course, it didn't happen, did it? Cursing usually comes in the heat of a battle or the heat of an argument or when someone treats you very poorly or treats you very unjustly and you know it. You know you've been snubbed. You know you've been neglected. You know you've been hated. You know you've been stepped on. You feel it. You feel it deeply. And somewhere from the inside wells up all of that and then it comes out. You didn't know you had so much inside of you. You kind of wished you didn't, but now you know you do. Same thing happens to me. Where did that come from? to quickly rebuke that. That was so wrong. Why did I think that and say that? And you're on your knees asking God for forgiveness. Clean my lips. Paul, when he was wrongfully treated, called the high priest in Acts 23.3 a whitewashed wall, which was probably true, but he had to retract it because it was disrespectful. Cursing comes from hatred. Cursing comes from a desire to destroy, to demolish, to demonize other people. Cursing is never meant to edify. So here's one application. You're watching on TV your least favorite politician. And you're laughing because you know what's coming next. Don't curse him or her. Pray for him or her. I tell you what, it'll clean things up in a hurry. Let your anger be against the devil and the demons, right? Our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Well, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are flesh and blood, okay? The demons behind whatever false messages may come from any side of the aisle, that is something we fight against. All the false thinking that comes from that. By the way, even thinking the curse is wrong, okay, just in case. <laughs> Young people, you get angry at your parents. Leviticus 29 if there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely, and it doesn't say be taken out to the woodshed and spanked. It says be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltness is upon him. By the way, the Bible always holds people responsible for their actions. Well, I couldn't help it. It's just the first time. His blood guiltness is upon him. You've got to get that thinking right in your mind. So we're not to curse men. That goes for women too. We're not to curse men, women, or children. We're to love them. We're to wish them no harm. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus taught, right? Now, I want to expand this discussion of cursing just a bit because if you're reading more broadly in Scripture, you'll have this question. The Word of God does speak of cursing as appropriate in some circumstances, particularly when we join God in God's curse against evil. Scripture speaks of curses not in the magical incantation sense that you might you know, see from, from those in pagan worship where they conjure up a curse and then put it upon them. I remember watching one of those mummy movies, you know, Return of the Mummy or something mummy. I forget what it was. And there's this guy going around who's always afraid. The thing is cursed. The object is cursed. It's cursed. And the guy said, quit saying everything's cursed. And there's this idea of those things that are cursed. But God brings real curses of his own power, not magic, down upon people. For example, the first man that I know of in Scripture who was cursed was Cain. Cain was cursed. Adam was never cursed. The ground was cursed. 
And Adam suffered because of that. He himself was not cursed. Cain was cursed because he murdered Abel. And God had worked with Cain to make sure he wouldn't murder Abel, but he didn't listen to counsel. God said, anyone who would curse Abraham, that God would curse. He said, the one who curses you, I will curse. Psalm 37, 22, for those blessed by God will inherit the land, but those cursed by God will be cut off. God has some who are cursed, and he cuts off their inheritance in the land of Israel. They get no more. 2 Kings 9, 34 says that Jezebel was a cursed woman. Deuteronomy 27 is a whole chapter of curses in the opposite of the blessings that would fall on any Israelite who didn't obey the law and keep the covenant. In fact, Paul picks up on that curse and echoes it in Galatians 3.10. He says, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So God cursed evil and disobedient men. But the truth is, godly men also cursed, pronounced curses on evil men. Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan. Canaan to be a servant of servants in Genesis 9.25. Joshua put a curse on anyone who would rise up and rebuild Jericho after it was destroyed. Joshua in Joshua 9.23 cursed the Gibeonites for deceiving him. They were supposed to all be wiped out and they deceived him and were able to live. He said, all right, you're going to live, but you're going to be under a curse. You're going to be servants for the rest of your lives. Judges 21.18, it says, because of the tribe of Benjamin committing a terrible, immoral act, the rest of the tribe said, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Anyone in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin. Very interesting account of Elisha the prophet, by the way. Very interesting account, particularly since I'm bald. <laughs> You'll get what I mean in a second. 2 Kings 2, verse 23, Elisha went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up, by the way, young lads, these are young boys, probably teenagers, came out of the city and mocked Elisha and said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Nobody should mess with the prophet of God. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. You say, what happened? Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Bunch of foolish young boys ripped up and spit out because of a divine curse. Nehemiah gave men a curse for the people's sin in Nehemiah 13.25. Again, participating in the covenant of God that had a curse upon their disobedience. Paul put a curse on anyone who did not preach the true gospel in Galatians 1.8. Anyone who doesn't preach the right gospel, let him be accursed. So the point is that where God's curse rests upon people according to his word, men may pass on that curse. It's not their curse, it's God's. But those were not curses of personal hatred. In our personal relationships where people do us harm, we are to wish well back to them. That is how we overcome evil by doing what? Good, right? That's the Christian power. James is referring to its sinful expression. When bitterness comes and anger comes and you're jealous that someone else is getting something that God hasn't given to you and you're angry with God and you're angry with men and you curse them. And this is not referring just to don't curse the brethren. This is broader. Don't curse unbelievers either. Notice it says next, who have been made in the likeness of God. That covers everybody. Everyone that's created is created in the likeness of God, right? 
Not just Christians. Those that follow the Muslim religion, though it's a false religion, they're made in the image of God. Those who follow the Buddhist religion, though they're not following light, they're still made in the image of God. Shintoism, whatever, atheists, it doesn't matter. We are made in the likeness, homoiosis, a making like God. All humans, regenerate, unregenerate, good, evil, are still made from creation in the image of God. The image of God in man, the imago Dei, is a doctrine of basic foundational importance that gives rise to our understanding of many other doctrines, including the humanity of Christ, but it also helps us to understand ethics. Why do we treat people the way we treat them? How should we treat people? It goes back to the imago Dei, the image of God stamped in man. The New Dictionary of Theology says the doctrine of the image of God is the foundation for human dignity and for biblical ethics. Being pro-life, that we protect the lives of the unborn because they're made in the image of God, comes from this. You have to, as a Christian, be pro-life because that life is to be protected. It's innocent human life. We have to be against murder because murder is the killing of someone made in the image of God. By the way, abortion is murder. We have to protect innocent life. When we're against murder, we're for the protection of innocent life, lives that have been made in the image of God. Because of the image of God, we have to be for the death penalty because the person who murders deserves to die because he killed one made in the image of God who was innocent. This is a foundation for Christian ethics. The image of God is intrinsic to every human being, and it's universal in every human being, men and women. Men are not more made in the image of God than women or vice versa. Even after the fall and the sin and things got violent and ugly and sinful and immoral, we're still reading here in James 3, and James knows about sin. He's listing a lot of the sins here. We read that we are made in the image of God, the likeness of God. Further proof is in Genesis 5.3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image. Well, what was Adam made in? Adam was made in the likeness and the image of God. So if his son is in the likeness and image of Adam, that means that likeness and image transfers even after the fall down to the next generations, you see. Many generations later, after the flood in the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That's the endorsement for the capital penalty, the penalty of death for those that have murdered. For in the image of God, he made him. That person murdered was innocent. You must take the life as government of the person that did that because if you don't, you don't honor the life of the person that was killed. By letting the murderer live, you have dishonored the image of God. And that's why it must be shed. God's person must not be cursed. And when the image of God is murdered, that person is not allowed to live. Unfortunately, our society kills the innocent and allows, defends the rights of those that are guilty. We got it exactly backwards. Listen, the image remains even in gross, sinful men. The image of God was not lost in the fall. Unbelievers and idol worshipers are also made in the image of God. Homosexuals, though we hate their practice, are made in the image of God. 
It's one of the reasons why what they do so dishonors God. They're supposed to reflect that image more, you see. And same with all of us. Post-fall, the image became marred but never removed. It became defaced but not erased. It had been distorted but never demolished. In some people, this image is so frightfully deformed, we might say it's not there, but traces of it always remain. Men may look and act like beasts at times, but they never shed being made in the image of God. The image of God is not dependent on any activity or relationship that man has. Man does not lose the image if he chooses not to exercise dominion over the planet. If he chooses to act ungodly, he does not lose the image. Nor does man lose the image if he disassociates himself with all other human beings, goes somewhere off in northern Alaska and decides to have a relationship with nobody. He's still made in the image of God. The image is not something that man possesses. The image is not something man does. The image is something man is. Man is the image of God. The New Dictionary Theology goes on. Recent ancient Near Eastern studies help to throw light on the original significance of the biblical phrase. An image might be either a statue representing the one imaged or perhaps the king adopted as the son of a god. The image expressed the presence of an absent lord in the sphere of his own dominion. In that context, the image was, to this context, what the God was to the entire sphere of his lordship. This suggests that if it is man as man, not some element in his constitution, which constitutes the divine image, man in his entirety is the viceroy of the earth. He is to be to the earth what Yahweh, that is God, is to the entire universe. His life is to be a microcosm of the macrocosm of divine life, end quote. Anthony Hokema, in his book on anthropology, quotes Herman Bavnik, and he writes this, Man does not simply bear or have the image of God. He is the image of God. From the doctrine that man has been created in the image of God flows the clear implication that that image extends to man in his entirety. Nothing in man is excluded from the image of God. All creatures reveal traces of God, he writes, but only man is the image of God. And he is the image totally in soul and body, in all faculties and powers, in all conditions and relationships, end quote. Please remember this, however. The image of God is still an image, not the real thing. Some people distort this into we are God. No, we're not God. We're the image of God. And there is a Wide gulf of difference between that. Man's nature is linked with God's, but never is divine. Man is made. God is not made. And man is not divine. Man is not to be worshipped. Man is to be respected for the sake of the one who is worshipped. If you had a photograph of your wife, gentlemen, and you really loved it, you showed it to someone, they said, let me see that, and they took it and ripped it up in front of you, wouldn't you take offense? You take offense because the picture is an image of the one that you love very much, right? However, the picture, no matter how much you take offense, is not worth anywhere near as much as your beloved wife, amen? amen? That's how it is. We are the image. We're the photograph. We're the statue, so to say, of God. We are to speak of God's image with respect, not curse it. That's who men are. But notice verse 10. From the mouth come both blessing and cursing. This is the problem. This is the dichotomy. We bless God and turn right around and 
curse the same person. We're cursing God when we curse men. You see, your reverence and love for God has to be transferable to the one that God made in his own image and said, respect them. In 1 John 4, verse 20, it kind of brings out this inconsistency also. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Think about that image Pastor Tom was just talking about. The picture of a person is not worth anywhere near as much as the person themselves. That is completely true of God. Why do we worship things in this world that remind us of God instead of Him? Pastor Tom urged you today to figure out who or what you're looking to for guidance in life. Is it God or is it a poor substitute? As you lean into God's love for you more and more, you'll find a love for other people grows as well. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. God certainly planned this world out well. Just look at nature, look at the animals and the vegetation of the land, and look at human beings. The complex and creative way we're made is absolutely perfect in all its varieties. Pastor Tom will be reminding you next time that God also had a purpose for each of these pieces of creation, and we're to use them correctly. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.